0: Welcome to the Protestant Witness, this is Pastor Patrick Hines here at Birdwell Heights Presbyterian Church in Kingsport, Tennessee, and today I'm going to post what was um, selected as a staff pick on Sermon Audio, a sermon I preached on Isaiah 53 uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and it's already got 500 downloads, so I was really encouraged by that. This is only the second time uh, this has happened. I've got, um, I think, close to 800 sermons out there now, but Uh, This sermon evidently struck a chord with some folks. Um, Someone left a a really encouraging comment on on our uh, church's uh, YouTube site as well. So I was really happy with that and and really encouraged and um, it really poured my heart and soul into this sermon. Uh, Isaiah 53 is just a special uh, passage. It's such a celebration of the perfection of the work of Christ and it's just such a glorious thing. It's it's so worth um, reading through that chapter and just rejoicing in the glorious and wonderful things that God has revealed to us in it about the work of Jesus to save us from our sins. And I just want to encourage, um, Tim Shaughnessy and, um, and my, my friends here at at Thorn Crown, um, that your, your labor is not in vain. And, um, Isaiah 53 is a, a great reminder, um, of what it is that Jesus did and what Jesus did we make no contribution to at all. None. And what Jesus did was save us from our sins and bore our iniquities and took away our transgressions and justifies us. That's what Jesus does. That is the accomplishment of Christ and his work for us. And anyone who confuses The categories of justification and sanctification needs to be repudiated and needs to be denounced because i don't care who they are or how people might think well you know we'll give them a pass because they they tend to kind of overstate things and they're just trying to make sure we're we're not accused of antinomianism blah 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 um no if you detract from the perfection of the work of christ and you teach that we're saved from the wrath of god by something other than the cross work of Christ and the righteousness of Christ, that is a false gospel. And it's something that ought to offend every Christ loving gospel believing Christian in the world. And so this is a really, really, really important passage of scripture because of the glorious truths that it reveals to us. And because it teaches that Jesus is the one who saves us from our sins. It's Christ alone who does all this, and we receive his benefits by faith alone. And if that makes us sound like an antinomian, then we're in good company because people said that about Paul all the time. And he answers that question, and we've answered it exactly the same way that he does, by pointing to the reality that God frees us from the dominion of sin. That's what Romans chapter 6 is all about. Uh, The Apostle Paul would never, ever, ever have said Oh no no no! We're not antinomians because there's this third category called final salvation, and it's by works, and and we're we're finally saved by the f- the fruits of our faith. That that's not how Paul answers the charge, and that's not how we answer it. That's not how people that love the gospel answer it either. So, would encourage you if you're if you're able, uh, take out a Bible and look at Isaiah chapter 53, and follow along. Uh, it's a glorious, glorious passage. Just kind of walk phrase by phrase through it. Let, try to let the passage do the talking. Um, because what it says is a comfort uh, to my soul, to my sin-sick soul. And I am so very, very thankful that Jesus has paid for all of my sins. I am so thankful that He, by his knowledge my righteous servant, shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. It is such an encouraging, wonderful, glorious truth. To know the one true living saving gospel and anything contrary to the one true living saving gospel is no gospel at all and is another gospel and can't save anyone so we want to be clear on the gospel on how a person is made right with God we want to be clear that people need to be called to repent but that we are not saved by repenting we're not saved by repentance we're not saved by putting sin to death we're not saved by pursuing holiness we're saved by the blood and righteousness of christ alone when you speak of saved uh not in, in the technical broad soteriological way but in the way scripture speaks of it in romans 5 9 uh ephesians 2 8-10 it's not by works lest anyone should boast so we're saved from the wrath of god having been justified by his blood um, we're, we're saved from wrath through Him, not not saved from wrath um, by the fruits of our faith, but saved from wrath through Christ alone. That's what Isaiah fifty three is about. That's what it's a great celebration of. And so, I hope that you will find this to be edifying to your soul. And let's pray together, please. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us the inspired words of Scripture. We thank you that you have spoken and communicated to us clearly in a way that we can understand your character sufficiently to know who you are, to know ourselves as sinners, and to know your son, Jesus Christ, who came into the world, suffered and died, was buried and rose again. May we listen carefully to your holy word. May we receive its truths with faith and love, lay them up in our hearts and practice them in our lives. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 will be our sermon text for this morning. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, this is God's word. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed." All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. He was with the rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The great Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8-9 wrote this wonderful sentence. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That you, through his poverty, might become rich. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, starts that hymn. We know from many passages of Scripture in the New Testament that the coming of salvation to the world in Jesus the Messiah is the primary topic of the entire Old Testament. Peter wrote about it in 1 Peter. He said, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It seems that even the Old Testament prophets themselves read their own books, wondering what all of it meant. When our great Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, into what a state did the fall bring mankind, it, it brings mankind into an estate of sin and misery. And the good news is that Christ, our Redeemer, has entered into a covenant of grace to deliver us out of that estate of sin and misery, and to bring us into an estate of salvation But in order to bring us out of that sinful and miserable estate, he had to bear in his body and soul the fullness of the horrible and unspeakable consequences of his people's sins. Isaiah's prophecy, that passage that we just read, was written 700 years before the birth of Christ, seven centuries before Jesus was born. And yet, in this 53rd chapter, we have what can only be regarded as one of the clearest descriptions of the sufferings and crosswork of Christ in the entire Bible. Obviously, the New Testament has a lot of detailed information concerning the cross and what it accomplished. But this single chapter in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, brings us one of the clearest, most beautiful, and special passages in what it narrates of the whole Bible, in what seems to have been written by someone who was standing at the foot of the cross itself watching what was happening. And so let's walk through it together. There's a lot of text here I want to get through. Let's look through it together. Look at verse 1 again. Said Isaiah, God through Isaiah, 700 years before Christ was born, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? One of the saddest parts of being a Christian is seeing the number of people that we know and the number of people in our society in the world who hear the gospel and reject it who has believed our report says God to Isaiah and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed the number of people that also twist the message into something more palatable to people's minds and hearts their fallen minds and hearts the people of Israel were eventually exiled into the southern out of the southern kingdom by the Babylonians in the north was exiled by the Assyrians and there, and so few would listen. God sent them prophet after prophet after prophet to announce God's judgment and to demand that they return to him. God sent them prophets that prophesied judgment after judgment after judgment, but they were always interspersed with these wonderful promises. But even now, after all you've done, if you turn back to me, I'll save you. I'll have mercy on you. And even though thousands were saved at Pentecost, comparatively few people believed the message of Christ for the rest of the book of Acts. The Old Testament people of God, for the most part, never believed those prophets. They rejected them, they murdered them, persecuted them. Even when the apostles died, Christians were anything but a majority. They were still a small band of convinced followers, of born-again people. There were small groups of them scattered around the various cities in which the apostles and evangelists had preached. And even these were bitterly persecuted and paid dearly for their faith in Jesus. Always remember, folks, that the greatest of all things that you could ever have, whatever burdens or sorrows you've carried into the pew with you this morning, the greatest gift you have is a broken heart over your own sin and a genuine sense of shame over your own sin and repentance of that sin and faith in Christ alone as your living Lord and Savior. Remember, we've studied in great detail the Beatitudes. Jesus pronounced such people to be blessed. Some of those very first words that he ever spoke in public to a huge throng of people, they probably did not resonate very well with almost anyone listening to them. He said, blessed and happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. In other words, blessed are you who do not feel very good right now. Blessed are you who are very sad over your spiritual estate right now. Blessed are you who recognize when you look in the mirror, I'm not a good person. I'm not very spiritual and I'm not very happy with who I am. Jesus said, you're the ones I came for. You're the ones I came to make happy. So if you feel terrible about yourself and feel poor in spirit and are mourning over your sin and you hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus says, you have every reason to be happy because I came to save you. The spiritually satisfied, those who see themselves as wealthy spiritually, those who are happy and laugh now. Jesus didn't come for them. He didn't come to save them. I want to encourage you all. Listen. Listen to the Holy Spirit of God speaking in Scripture. Listen to his convicting work in your heart. Never follow the counsel of the world. When the world tells you, be true to yourself, don't do that. Repent and be true to Christ. That's worth more than all the world together. When the world around us, folks, when it's telling you, I just got to be true to who I am. I got to be true to myself. What they really mean is be true to the sickest, darkest, and most perverted, twisted desires that exist in your heart of hearts. And friends, that's the exact opposite of what Christ calls us to and of what the word of God calls us to. The scriptures tell us to deny ourselves. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and die to yourself. Die to who you are and labor to be true to Christ, your Lord and Master. There's nothing that breaks our hearts more than to see the hardness of heart that exists in so many toward the things of God and in our culture today. You know, we heard reports at that conference from people who are missionaries in India, and they were talking about tens of thousands of Hindus are coming to Christ every day. And we heard about ministers that are baptizing 20 people every Sunday. I was thinking, I haven't baptized 20 adults in my whole life. I've baptized a lot of children, a lot of babies, but not that many adults. God is doing great works in other parts of the world, but one of the evangelists that spoke there said, but for some reason right now he's not doing much of that here. We live in a time that this is a spiritual wasteland. Nobody cares anymore. I, I got to get caught up on my, my stuff on Netflix. I, I'm, I'm eight episodes behind on whatever frivolous, meaningless, immoral entertainment it's heartbreaking to see Lord who has believed our report does anybody believe it in America anymore nothing can compare folks to having a genuine interest in the Savior's blood and no possession is greater than the forgiveness of sins and the imputed righteousness of Christ Isaiah laments this in the opening verse with those two rhetorical questions Lord who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed sadly at that point when he said that just a precious few But praise God, it will not always be this way. The number of God's elect, we're told in Scripture, is so vast that no man can count them. Indeed, we look forward to better days than the ones we live in now. But we still lament with Isaiah over how few in our country, how few in our neighborhoods, how few people that we work with seem to recognize at all that they need a Savior. And only God can make them see it. Look at verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. What about this man of sorrows, this suffering servant, the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman that's being talked about so clearly in Isaiah 53? There was nothing about him that people liked. Nothing attractive about who he was. Remember King Saul? The people of Israel, we want a king, 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 give us a king. And God says, okay, y'all want a king? Here he is, big stud. He's a head taller than everybody. He's handsome. He's a powerful warrior. David was ruddy and handsome. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Sarah and Rachel were said to be very beautiful, but not so the savior of the world. Here the prophecy about him compares him to a tender plant and a root out of dry ground. The image that's given there in the Hebrew is that of something growing up out of your land. You don't want to grow there. It's the saplings and the weeds and the other junk that you constantly see him and you just go crazy when you're trying to plant something else more useful. He's like a root out of dry ground. What do you do with the roots out of dry ground? You pick them up and throw them away, throw them into the fire. That's the way that the suffering servant would be like. There'd be nothing about him that would draw people to him. He's like a root out of dry ground, something you don't even want to grow there anyway. He did not come from riches. He was born in a section of an inn, where the beasts of burden were bedded down for the night, wasn't even given a proper room when he was born. He was raised in a poor carpenter shop in a town whose name would have been forgotten had he not been born there. If we had seen Jesus, if we had seen him with our own eyes, we would have quickly passed on to something more interesting. There was no form or comeliness and no beauty in him that anyone would be attracted to him in any way. He was extraordinary only in his ordinariness in the way he came into the world and the way he looked. Jesus was a nobody. He wasn't overly handsome from an insignificant and poor family. As a root out of dry ground, no beauty that we should desire him. Verse three, look at it. He is despised and rejected by men. And here's the key phrase for this morning's sermon. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Jesus experienced the hatred of men and the rejection of men his entire life. From the moment he was conceived in the womb, the wicked of the world were trying to kill him. And then we have that stirring title, Man of Sorrows and Acquainted with Grief. And it's immediately followed with even more painful things. Jesus was indeed a man of great sorrow and grief in his mind and heart and soul. He would have been In great need of friends who would support and encourage and stand by him. Instead, what do men do with Jesus? What does the text say? They hid their faces from him. They hid their faces from him. I don't even want to to acknowledge that you're there. Despised, hated. People hid their faces from him, didn't even want to look at him. He was not esteemed. The opening of John's gospel, he was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, to the Jewish people. They did not receive him. They despised him. They hated him. He was rejected. And because of that, he was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. Folks, I want to encourage you to remember something very important. One of God's purposes, he, in predestining us to eternal life, to, to salvation, he also predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And if the one to whose image we are being conformed was a man of sorrows, it ought not surprise us that we're often people of sorrows too. That sorrow characterizes us day in and day out. If rejection and hatred were the almost constant response Jesus received from people, Ought we to be surprised that we receive the same kind of despising and hatred from others? Why do people hide their faces from someone? Why do people immediately turn their face away? Because they don't want to see them. There's something there they don't want to look at. There's something that's gross. There's something that's vile to them as a person. You've seen it before. People see a a gross injury in a sporting contest. What do people immediately do? Immediately they look away because they, they can't stand to see it. And yet Jesus needed people to love him. He needed encouragement. He needed friends. And even his disciples fled and abandoned him in his hour where he needed prayer, he needed encouragement, he needed support. He was a man from whom other human beings hid their faces. See the verses leading up to Isaiah 53. Look at Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his visage, his face was marred, more than any man and his form more than the sons of men you see what that's saying here you have Jesus coming into the world a man of sorrow a man who was acquainted with grief a man who lived and slept and got up in the morning and the heartache was there all the time he had this heartache and this burden this sorrow and this grief don't be surprised if sorrow and grief characterize your life a lot here he is the only hope of every human being on earth And they hated him for it. Why? Because men love sin. They love darkness. They don't want the light. If you're a Christian, it's a blessing to hate your sin. Aren't you glad? As much as you mourn over sin's presence that's still in your life, at least you hate it. At least you despise it. And you love Christ. But for those who still love their sin, it's Jesus that they hate. Because he is the light and men love darkness rather than light. It's Jesus from whom they hide their face. It's Jesus they despise and refuse to esteem. You know, all of the Psalms are Christ-centered. They're all Christological in in their import. Psalm 109, verse 5. Listen to this. Thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Here you have the greatest act of goodness ever to human beings, to rebel sinners who are doing everything they can to wreck and destroy the whole world and to set it on fire and to grease the skids on the way to hell. Here God does good for us. God sends love into the world. And what does it say? What's our response? They've rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. He was a man of sorrows because he was hated by the world he came to save. Remember when he healed that man with the withered hand? right there in the precincts of the temple, and he was surrounded by Pharisees. What does it say in the Gospels? And Jesus looked at the Pharisees. They were standing there watching him to see, is he going to heal them on the Sabbath? Apparently miracles have no effect on people's hearts. Is he going to heal them on the Sabbath? And it says in the text, Jesus looked at them. He looked at those Pharisees and it says, and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. He was a man of sorrows because everything about his entire existence in this world had a curse-bearing aspect to it his entire state of humiliation was one of pain the humiliation that which preceded his glorious exaltation consisted in his being born and he was born in a low condition he was born in conditions I would never have tolerated for any of my own children to be born in never be born out there in the cow pasture or by farm animals no way He was also made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the curse of death of the cross, and being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. That's what he knew he came to do. That's why he was a man of sorrows. His heart was broken. He was a sojourner here to accomplish a mission. In many ways, we are too. We are pilgrims and sojourners. It makes sense. We're going to have sorrow and heartache and grief while we're in this world because this is not our home in that way. It was a bitter, bitter, painful, lonely, and agonizing cup that Christ drank in our behalf. And let's look at it in more detail. The the passage gets even more explicit. Look at verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You can also translate that word as sicknesses. He carried our sicknesses. In Matthew 8, 16, when evening had come, they brought him many who were demon-possessed and he cast out the spirits at a word and healed all who were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Here, the gospel writer quotes this passage we just read. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. That Hebrew term is translated sicknesses. Sicknesses and sorrows are the results of Adam's and our own deliberate sinful behavior. But Christ would come one day to bear them. It's a powerful Hebrew verb, to bear these things. Christ would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. And that Hebrew verb that's translated born there, to, to bear something, means to carry, to lift up something and carry it. The consequences of our sin, which rightly and justly fell upon us because of our sin, those consequences are infinitely heavier than we could ever pick up. We cannot carry it. It'd be like being asked to, to deadlift 3,000 pounds. There's no man on earth, no matter how much he ever trained, that could carry that load. And Jesus walks over and not only carries it, he destroys it. In fact, that ultimate consequence of eternal damnation, it's a burden <clears throat> that ultimately will crush the unrepentant all the way into hell itself. What we must recognize is that this burden, this load of the weight of infinite wrath from the infinitely holy God that we have offended is not something we can carry. Nothing I do or you do could ever lift this weight of burden off of us. None but Christ can do it. He alone has the strength to carry it. This is one reason that R.C. Sproul wrote that wonderful hymn Heavy is our Savior's cross. I remember reading Fox's Book of Martyrs years ago about the many ministers that were executed by the Inquisition in England. And there was one man who refused to believe Rome's false gospel, who refused to believe that justification could in any way, shape, or form be by works, that you could get into heaven by anything other than faith in Jesus Christ. And his final words from inside the fire, he clapped his hands three times and said, none but Christ." None but Christ. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In the depths of Christ's agony, when he was delivered over to his enemies to be afflicted, wounded, bruised, chastised, and given stripes, he experienced the fullness of God's wrath against the sins of all his people. There was no mercy at all for him. No respite from the pain and the agony, no intermission to it, and no peace He bore that load. That infinite wrath was taken off of us and placed upon his holy and strong shoulders. He carried our griefs, our sicknesses, our sorrows. Throughout his earthly public ministry, Jesus gave the world a very small and yet very glorious foretaste of the grand healing that will one day take place. How many diseases and conditions and blindness and deafness and every other kind of affliction imaginable have God's people suffered with? How many people on our church's prayer list at any given moment are dealing with life-threatening illnesses? People of all ages. It's heartbreaking to think about people who are teenagers in their 20s who deal non-stop with these physical diseases. I remember hearing a story of a Reformed minister who had a a friend in their congregation that had spina bifida and lived with with tremendous pain all the time. And they were sitting around on the Sabbath day on, on the afternoon just talking about Paul's discussion in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection about the glorious resurrection that's going to take place where God will redeem our bodies and restore them to their pristine glory and remove all of our diseases. And this reform minister said that that man was sitting over there on the other side of the room and tears were just streaming down his face and they stopped talking and he just said, I can't wait. They'll be gone in an instant the day of the resurrection. Jesus' bore and carried our sicknesses. Every effect of the curse, every effect of the fall is gone in Christ. And when we're raised to life, there will be no more of those pains and aches and everything else. He bore the results of our sins against God. Now you see the second part of verse 4? Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It is perhaps one of the greatest ironies in the history of mankind that so many people who were witnesses to the crucifixion of Christ really believed he was being smitten for his own sins. The thing is, he was being stricken, smitten of God. But it wasn't for his own sins. It was because of the legal transfer of our guilt to his account before God, the Father. He was accounted As a sinner, he was accounted as having committed all the things that you and I did this week in violation of God's law. And people went by that cross and saw him and said, Yeah, he's being put to death for his own crimes, for his own blasphemy. And they didn't realize that it was for his people's sins, not his. The dying thief, the one that was converted in those final moments of his life, even he thought. He was being crucified for his own guilt. He joined the other thief initially in reviling him. Hey, if you're the king, why don't you get us down from here? If you really are who you say you are, why don't you save us and yourself? He was insulting, reviling. He was hiding his face and despising Jesus. And then the powerful birth from above takes place in his heart. He has that moment in those final minutes of his life. And he says to the other man on the cross when Jesus powerfully, irresistibly, effectually calls him. He says to that other one, don't you even fear God, seeing that you're under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. That's one of the most powerful confessions and owning of guilt and shame in the entire Bible. Here you have a man in unspeakable agony nailed to a cross. And he recognizes because the Holy Spirit made him born again while he was still nailed to that cross. And he recognizes finally in that moment, this is what I deserve. How many of us would, if nailed to a cross, would say, this is justice. This is what I deserve for the life I live. This is what I deserve for what I did this week. What an incredible moment. What an amazing thing. He recognizes his own crucifixion was just and was the due reward of his deeds. And yet he started out on the cross reviling Jesus with the other guy, with the other thief on the cross. Reviling him. And then he finally recognizes this man has done nothing wrong. But we have. What's wrong with you? Are you out of your mind? Look what's happening to us. If that does not point out the need for a supernatural rebirth, I don't know what would. Look at verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. This is a beautiful portrait of what happened when Jesus was handed over to his enemies. Remember how many times they wanted to lay hands on him in the gospels and they wanted to lay hands on him and they wanted to take him and grab him, but they could not for his hour had not yet come. Always remember God and the Lord Jesus Christ are sovereign throughout the entire ordeal. No one could touch him until the time came that he was handed over. It's very hard to imagine after what he went through, what his face must have looked like. That's what Isaiah 52 at the end of that passage is talking about. His visage, his face was marred more than any man. What did his body look like by the time they were done? As hard as it is for us to think of it, when he was finally uncrucified, which is almost more brutal physically than being crucified, trying to uncrucify someone. In fact, there's old grave cloths where you can see they just left the nails in their body. What did he look like when they were done? Isaiah fifty-two fourteen. Just as many were astonished at you, so his face was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Consider the ways in which he was wounded. You see verse 5 there again? Let the weight of verse 5 hit you in the heart this morning. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, for the careless ways I have sinned in my life against my family, against my children, against you all, against my wife. The bruising for that fell upon him. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes, by the cat of nine tails ripping the flesh off of his back, by those stripes I am healed, I am forgiven. Think about this, folks. Matthew twenty six sixty six 66 says, They answered and said, He is deserving of death. This is at the trial before the Sanhedrin. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands. Isn't that terrible to think about? Men walking up, I mean, you can do a lot of damage with an open, an open palm slap in the face. People are slapping him, hitting him, punching him, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, Messiah, who is the one that struck you? Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin beat him, spat on him, and struck him with the palms of their hands. It was unmitigated hatred. These were no doubt vicious blows to his face. They wounded and bruised him, but this was merely the beginning Matthew 27, 26. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Scourging was one of the most horrifying things that could ever happen to a human being. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They put a scarlet robe on him after they scourged him, after they ripped the skin off the back of his body. What happens when you wear something with an open wound? It congeals to the fabric, doesn't it? When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And a reed, the reed, like a scepter in his right hand, that term kalamos, staff, is the same thing that they used to get the, the sponge filled with sour wine all the way up to him, his head on the cross to try to offer him that wine. So this is a very long, very strong stick. So Jesus has been scourged, has a purple robe put on him, has the crown of thorns put on his head and is given a staff and they make fun of him saying, kneeling in front of him, hail king of the Jews. And then they took that reed and struck him on the head after the crown of thorns was put on it. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him. I assure you they weren't gentle when they did that. He put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. What did he look like when this was over? Here we have the man of sorrows Carrying the sorrows of his people, bearing the chastisement for their peace, being wounded, slapped, spit on, beaten, scourged, and ultimately nailed to a cross to die. But all of it, every strike of the hand, every blow to his head, every stripe on his back, every nail in his hands and feet, every thorn in his brow, every time that reed hit him in the head was for our transgressions, for our iniquities. What kind of horrible person must I really be for that to be the only way I could be forgiven before God? That was the only way that forgiveness of sins and justification could be brought about. And think about the careless ways that we pass off times of private prayer. Here God has given us access to his throne of grace through the body and blood of Christ. And we, well, there's something else I'd rather do right now. We're so half-hearted and cold-hearted. But even that was died for as well. Aren't you thankful for that? Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There must not ever enter into your heart any toleration for a false gospel that suggests that human works, our sanctification, our pursuit of holiness, in any way, shape, or form gets us into heaven. When Paul mercilessly and relentlessly cursed and condemned the Judaizers of Galatia and their false gospel of justification by faith plus obedience, Paul made a statement we would do well to heed in our own time. In Galatians 2.5 he said, To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour. We didn't need to form a study committee and come back two years later. Well, are these guys really preaching a false gospel or not? They were! Are these guys heretics or not? They're heretics. They're false teachers. They're saying that what Jesus experienced and went through is not enough to get us into heaven. And there's nothing more offensive to a Christian than that. How dare you trample on the sufficiency of his suffering to save me? The moment Adam ate the fruit, please remember this. Please remember this. When you hear the, the, the John Pipers and all his defenders and everyone else in the world that tries in some new brilliant nuanced way to repackage the same old heresies please remember this as soon as adam ate the forbidden fruit justification and getting into heaven by works ceased to be possible in any way shape or form your very best works of sanctification and your christian life can no more save your soul or contribute to you getting into heaven than you or i could jump over the moon no role whatsoever and getting us into heaven. None at all. And to say that they do is is an attack on what we're reading here in Isaiah 53. He bore our sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. No amount of suffering on my part could ever atone for my own transgressions. That's why hell is eternal. They will never finish paying the debt load that they owe to God. No suffering on my part can accomplish anything in the sight of God. The whole life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ stands as an inalterable testimony to the utter helplessness of humanity to do anything at all to save themselves. That's why Paul concludes his grand treatment of sin in Romans 1, 2, and 3 by saying, Therefore, concluding, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. We're saved by grace, not by works lest anyone should boast. Why can't we save ourselves? Because we've all gone astray. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've gone every one to our own way. The unregenerate man is dead in his trespasses and sins. He has eyes but sees not. He has ears but hears not. He can no more believe in Christ and he can repent. And the gospel is nonsense to him, utter foolishness to him. And the scripture says the natural man is not able to know it. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 would have to come and die in the place of those who hated him, rejected him, and despised him precisely because they were lost sheep. They were lost sheep and were delighted in being lost sheep. They took pleasure in being lost. They wanted to stay lost. It is God's grace, love, and power that finally breaks through upon the rebel sinner. It is God who opens their eyes. It is God who unplugs their ears. It is God who terrorizes their souls over their sin. And the Holy Spirit who effectually convinces them of their sin and misery. Why did that dying thief finally see the Holy Spirit of God convinced him? You're here. You deserve it. This is what you get for your deeds. God has to do it all, folks. Man has no part in it. He's not the originator of his faith or his repentance. God alone receives the glory for the whole of our salvation. The opening point of Jonathan Edwards in his one of his best sermons he ever preached, everyone knows Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, but in my opinion, his greatest sermon is God Glorified in Man's Dependence. Here's, here's point number one. This is just the name of the point uh, in Edwards' sermon, the opening point. I've got to come up with a way of writing sermon outlines this, like this. He says, point number one, this is the heading. There is an absolute and universal dependence of the redeemed on God. The nature and contrivance of our redemption is such that the redeemed are in everything directly, immediately, and entirely dependent on God. They are dependent on him for all and are all dependent on him every way, end quote. Notice the second phrase of Isaiah 53, six. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There you have substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. One of the most important words in the whole Bible is the little Greek preposition, huper. Huper means in behalf of. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, huper, in behalf of us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin who pair in behalf of us that we would become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became sin for us that we would become the righteousness of God in him. Paul speaks of it in Romans 4, 6 just as David speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God reckons or imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth. He was laid as a lamb, led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its sears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So baseless and foolish were the accusations made against Jesus that he didn't dignify any of them with a response. He opened not his mouth. Even when they tried to bribe witnesses to come up with things, they sought false testimony against him. Matthew 26, 63 says, but Jesus kept silent. When they brought him before the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate, Again, the ancient prophecy of Isaiah 53 was fulfilled. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word. And so that the governor marveled greatly. Pilate had never seen anything like this. Here you have a guy up against the the possibility of being crucified. I would imagine every man that he had ever seen, Pilate had ever talked to, those men were probably terrified white over the prospect of being crucified. And Jesus is silent. Just as a lamb before its shearers is silent, even while he was oppressed and afflicted, he did not open his mouth, we know. He came as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul even said in First Corinthians 5, 7, indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. He is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. In fact, John the Baptist, remember what he said the first time he saw Jesus out there in public? Behold, the lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Look at verse 8, Isaiah 53, 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. The Jewish people at the time of Christ did not understand. They did not understand what the Old Testament meant when it says, for example, in this passage in Isaiah 53, he will be cut off. This suffering servant, the Messiah, is going to be killed. The Jews didn't like that idea. They didn't believe that idea. Even when Jesus told his own disciples, I am going to be handed over and crucified. What did they do? What did Peter do? He pulls Jesus aside. Jesus, don't be such a downer. You're not going to be. This will never happen to you. What did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You want a kingdom of power in this world. I didn't come to do that. Daniel 9, 26. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself he'd be cut off for the sins of others. It will be the Messiah who is cut off and killed. There is, to my knowledge, no clearer and more concentrated section of biblical revelation which more forcefully and emphatically propounds the idea of a substitutionary death than Isaiah 53. When I was in seminary, I wrote a paper on Isaiah 53, and we were forced to read neo-Orthodox and liberal commentators, and that's when I was, was introduced to How badly people will dance a jig around something a passage says because they don't like it. I remember almost throwing some of those commentaries across the room or setting them on fire. I just couldn't believe. How can someone read this and not see a substitutionary atonement here? For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And you have guys with multiple PhDs after the name. There's There's no substitutionary atonement here. The servant would bear sicknesses, griefs, sorrows, stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, bruised, chastised, given stripes, bear iniquity, and be cut off. What does the passage say over and over again? For our transgressions, for our iniquities, for our peace, for our going astray, and our turning everyone to his own way. That's when I learned, writing that paper and reading those commentators. People can't do biblical interpretation if they're unregenerate. Because they can't see. They can't see what it says. And what a blessing to see that. Not only do I understand what it says, I know it's talking about me. Because I'm a transgressor. I have iniquity. I need peace. I went astray. I've turned to my own way. Every last drop of suffering in the cup of God's wrath is the result of our sin and our rebellion against God. What we see in the passion of Christ is in his sufferings, in his beatings, in his unspeakable agony, is but a small picture of the terrifying ferocity of God's anger against our sins, our transgressions, our iniquities. Look at verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. All of Jesus' sufferings were experienced in total moral innocence and purity in himself. It was a legal accounting. God the Father legally transferred all of my sin, The, the mountain of iniquity I have committed in my life, transferred its guilt to him, and poured out his wrath on him for it, for everything I've ever done, everything I've left undone, For those of you that know Christ, everything you've ever done that is a transgression of his law, all this great seasons of sin and temptation in your life, he bore them. No deceit was found in his mouth. That is just an incredible statement. What would it be like to have perfect speech? When I consider what has come out of this thing right here throughout my life, it is horrifying to think about it. I would not want people here to know the things that I have said since I was a little kid. And yet, for Jesus, not a single sinful word ever came out of, the, out of the man's mouth. Look at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Why is that such a significant statement? There was no deceit in his mouth. He had done no wrong. He had done no violence. Yet, he still was crushed. Put to Grief. Why does God save sinners at the expense of the miseries and anguish of his own perfect and dear son? The one who alone was had God the Father say about him, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know God can't say that about me. He can't say that about any of us. He can only say it about Christ. And yet it pleased him. It pleased him to crush him. He put him to grief. He freely chooses to love his people. And it pleases God to do so. Aren't you thankful? He's pleased to do that. God is glorifying his grace in the salvation of all the undeserving sinners he chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. Thus it pleased the father to bruise his son, to crush him in order to accomplish his will. Look at the last part of verse 10. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He will succeed in his grand mission and purpose. Christ made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Folks, always remember I've said this before, and I know you believe it. I want you to remember it. The triune God doesn't attempt to do anything, nor does he try to do anything. He does not throw the dice in hopes that things work out. Psalm 115, verse 3 Our God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. You see the first part of the second sentence in verse 10 again? When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul. You know what that's talking about? What is the labor of Christ's soul? It's all the sheep that he came to save. When he appears before God on the day of judgment, here am I and the children you have given me. You sent me into the world to save them. I did it. I accomplished it. I purpose to do it. I have achieved it. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Isn't that incredible? Christ will look at us, the finished product. Resurrected, glorified, sin-free sheep. He will see it and it will satisfy his heart. I accomplished my mission. You see the last part of verse 11. By the way, John Owen keys in on this last phrase of verse 11 and thinks it's one of the most powerful statements of limited atonement in the whole bible. And I agree with him. I think it's exactly right. Look at it. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You see the connection between justification and the bearing of iniquities? Every single person whose iniquities were borne by Christ will be justified before God. They will be justified before God. Jesus will look upon them and they have his righteousness. His forgiveness. When we're resurrected and then acquitted on the day of judgment, pronounced righteous and given the kingdom, Christ will be satisfied with his work. It will prosper in his hands. And by his knowledge, he will justify many because he has borne their iniquities. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Here we have yet one more clear, simple, straightforward assertion of the absolute substitutionary work of the Savior in the place of those he intends to justify and bring into heaven. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Dear congregation, this is the one that we believe in. This is the one we live for. This is the one we preach. This is the one we love. And I've given our hearts and our highest loyalty and allegiance to. The love with which we have been loved, folks, it's it's indescribable. It's unfathomable. It's unsearchable and glorious to behold. We tend to think, yeah, I'll I'll love people if they're worthy of it. I'll, I'll love my neighbor. I'll love this person or that person if I think that they might be worth my time. Jesus shook the entire world when he was born, when he lived, when he ministered, when he died and when he rose again. We even date our calendar by the birth of the man of sorrows. But it's a strange title, isn't it? Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That title ought to have special significance to each of us because everyone here knows sorrow of heart. And if you're a Christian, if you are a true believer, you're especially acquainted with sorrow. Burden is what you feel all the time. We not only have the plague of our own sin, our own sinful hearts that bothers us and makes us feel guilty and ashamed and it's a blessing to feel like you're a wretch. And please don't ever think I'm trying to make you not feel that way. I want you to feel like a wretch, because that's what we are. And one of the greatest Edwards scholars ever was R.C. Sproul's mentor, John Gerstner. And Gerstner preached like Jonathan Edwards. And he would preach these ferocious sermons on total depravity and, and then this justification by faith alone on the grounds of Christ's righteousness alone. And Gerstner said he shook a, a woman's hand in his congregation after one of those sermons. And that woman said said, Pastor, you make me feel about this big. And he said, Ma'am, that's entirely too big. <laughs> we see a world filled with people who are ruined. Every time we see that phrase in verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We who know him ache in our hearts because it's our sin that caused his sorrow. It's our sin that put him to grief. Jesus was acquainted with grief because his love for us and his willingness, his passion... To become our sin offering and our curse bearer. But it's still because of us that he was a man of sorrows. Isaiah 53 is a text that's been used of God for centuries on end to bring people to Christ. Is it not remarkable that we can use the same passage from the Old Testament? Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? What what chapter of the Old Testament was he reading on his carriage? Isaiah 53. And then God in his glorious sovereignty in those early stages he kind of Kind of beams Philip over there to talk to him to lead him to Christ, and and the Ethiopian eunuch asks the question: Is he talking about himself? Is the is the is Isaiah talking about himself or about someone else? And it says in the book of Acts, Philip, beginning with this passage, he preached Jesus to him. And then he wanted to be baptized, and he baptizes him. And many think that that Ethiopian eunuch—that's how the gospel got over there into Ethiopia. In closing, in 1875, in 1875, a 38-year-old hymn writer named Philip Bliss penned the words to one of his greatest hymns, and we still sing it today, or we're going to sing it here in closing. Less than one month before a tragic bridge collapse during a train ride would claim his life and his wife, Philip Bliss had conducted a service at the Michigan State Prison where he preached and then he closed the service by singing this new hymn, That he had written. Many of the prisoners that listened to him preach and then sang this hymn for the very first time, many of those prisoners wept openly and confessed Christ as their Savior. I'd like to read to you the lyrics to it Man of sorrows, what a name! For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior! Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring. Then anew, this song will sing hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, indeed our hearts are moved with joy and with sorrow over the sin that's still in us. But Lord, you have given us every reason to have hope and to have joy in the midst of trials, in the midst of bouts with sin, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of trials that break our hearts. And make us wonder about your goodness. Make us always remember. We who are your children. That the love of God is not an abstract philosophical concept. It has been demonstrated to us. God demonstrates his own love for us. And that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. We see your love. We remember that Jesus was here, that he walked this ground, that he breathed the air here, and that he laid his life down upon that bitter and cruel cross to bear our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And you have laid upon him the iniquity of us all. May we rejoice in that glorious truth, and may that be our anchor amid the storms, uncertainties, pain, sorrow, and heartache of life. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. This is Pastor Patrick Hines of Bridwell Heights Presbyterian Church, located at 108 Bridwell Heights Road in Kingsport, Tennessee, and you've been listening to the Protestant Witness Podcast. Please feel free to join us for worship any Sunday morning at 11 a.m. sharp, where we open the Word of God together, sing His praises, and rejoice in the gospel of our risen Lord. You can find us on the web at www.bridwellheightspca.org. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace.